Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. We're back for another Moving to Live podcast. As you heard at the intro, we interview exercise professionals who are involved in movement, exercise, and coaching who we find interesting. Our current guest I've been aware of for probably, I'm going to age him here, 20 years or so. When I first cold emailed him and asked him if he was interested in being on the podcast, I told him I remembered him from being on a triathlon news group, Rec Sport Triathlon, and there was a little bit of silence on the other end of the phone. So for those of you who have been in the internet world for a while, before there were forums, before it was easy to put up a blog, there were uh, basically very, very simplistic text-based things where people could do exactly what they do on blogs and forums. <laughs> so I've got Sam Callens. Sam comes from the Atlanta area originally, his current job, although he's got an interesting background that I think he's going to share with us, is he is the USA fencing coach educator. He's also got a coaching business for endurance activities called Smarter Coaching. As I told him before we started re uh, recording, he is the third or fourth person, the third person in a row that I've interviewed from Colorado Springs. So Sam, thanks for taking time from your schedule to talk to Moving to Live. Ben, I appreciate the offer to be on. And I aged you I, when I said that I first read about you or first became aware of you on Rex Sport Triathlon. And that was back in the days, I believe, when you were more involved heavily with working with either USA Cycling or the U.S. Olympic Committee. For, well, for one thing, I, w I think I was eight years old in those days, so it's okay. Um, but yeah, probably that may have even started when I was still in graduate school, depending upon kind of when that time frame was. I was in graduate school in the mid-90s and uh, had come across rec sport triathlon and rec sport bike racing. And yeah, those were interesting days, kind of very wild, wild west discussions. Um, 
and, and not that much different than now. It just uh, th- there was it was easier to be anonymous in those days than it is now. Yes, you so could, you could. Uh, the, I think the only reason I knew who you were, and then I met you probably five or six years ago at a NSCA conference. I think the only way you knew who you were is you actually signed your name, unlike a lot of other people. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I yeah, probably, probably stupidly in some cases I did that, but that's uh, okay. I made I made a lot of really good contacts through that world, and um, the people who I still. Are in contact with today and have used as resources uh, from those times. So as much as the internet and social media can get a bad rap, I think it's a, also a great way of sharing information and connecting with other people who share interests that you have. Um, otherwise, you know, I, I don't know how do people do this thirty years ago, forty years ago, other than going to conferences or you might read a paper and pick up the phone to call somebody. But man, I wonder how often that happened. Well, I know so, I, I was in a. Uh strength and conditioning journal uh, editorial meeting at the NSCA conference last month. And Lee Brown, who is a well-known member of the NSCA, was commenting about how it's changed and how print media is slowly dying and we're becoming much more digital. And I'm sure you remember the difficulties of posting pictures on the internet. And now, oh. now it's, on the one hand, I think it's more the wild, wild west. On the other hand, I think it's an improvement because you can get information out much, much faster. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yep. I, I come across people I follow on Twitter. You know, I come across articles or, you know, journal articles or newspaper articles that I, I don't know I would have ever found any other way. And, um, and that I then pass along as well. So I, I think for all the, for all the downsides to it, I think the upsides are still pretty much are, are, are there greatly. And I think that we need to remember that from time to time, that it is a useful medium and a useful way to get information out, just like podcasts are. And I think that's one of the things, one of the reasons I picked you, because I remember back in the rec sport triathlon days is you were one of the people who always, when you gave your opinion, also backed it up with literature or research. There wasn't a whole lot of I think or I feel. So I know now you're in a last four or five months at USA Fencing. If yes. you could just briefly describe what your job is there, and then we'll go back and find out how you moved from the Atlanta area and ended up in Colorado. Fantastic. Yeah, this is a this is a really interesting opportunity. So with the, within the Olympic sports world, there's the United States Olympic Committee, and then every sport in the Olympics that you watch, you know, every two years for the Winter Games, you know, in alternating years. Each sport has its own governing body that's an individual entity, and in the United States, coaching education is is um, very decentralized, and each organization basically does its own thing. And up until uh, the late last year, USA Fencing decided that it wanted to create its own internal coaching education program. There is uh, there's been a group that's been outside of USA fencing for a long time uh, doing education, teaching fencing coaches how to become fencing coaches or teaching fencers how to become fencing coaches. And USA fencing wanted to have its own in-house one. And they looked around and um, through some contacts with the high performance manager, um, she let me know that there was a job open. And I'd been involved in this the coaching education world, just asked basically, hey, if you know of anyone. Well, at the time, I was looking to get out of what I was doing and get back into this world. And I basically sent her a message back saying, I don't know much about fencing, um, but 
if you're willing to talk. And so we sat down, chatted, and I shared some ideas with her. And many months later, the position got approved, and I got hired to uh, work on our American development model, our long-term athlete development plan, and also to develop a coaching education program for fencing coaches. And so that's currently what I'm uh, neck deep in uh, trying to do is to uh, look at the national and international standards for coaching education and taking those and applying them in, in to, uh, into USA Fencing. And I have to ask because I was looking over your website, Smarter Coaching, this morning before I called you, and you have a bit of a blog that – you have a post on there, educating coaches in a bit of envy. Was this coming to fruition, that actual post, along with the time you were talking to USA Fencing before you began there? Wow, that's a good question. I have to go back and look and see why I posted that. But um, it, yeah, I, when I got out, when I left USA Cycling and, and went some other routes, I realized quickly that I really left a world that I, I really felt like I belonged in. And, um, and it took a little while to get back into this world. And luckily, uh, my, my boss, Kate, was willing to take a risk on having someone from outside the sport come in. But I also think I bring some things uh, with that as well. But, yeah, I, I really um, – I, I was really envious of folks who were still in the profession. And uh, and one of the things – I'll uh, free career advice is if you ever find yourself in that position, then start networking again get Again, to get back in, I created a, a meeting group here in town of uh, sport coach educators. We get together every three or four months and just talk about what was going on in coaching education. I had stayed involved through the United States Center for Coaching Excellence and uh, some people who are in the in the world. And so I, I wasn't completely out of it, but I was I was at arm's length anyway. But keeping those contacts up for for those worlds is always a good idea. And we'll have show notes with links to all those things so anybody who's either in the Colorado Springs area or maybe traveling there is able to find them and maybe connect with other people. Yeah, that would be great. So most of you who are listening, if you've lived in different parts of the United States, you can tell that Sam's accent is not a Colorado <laughs> accent. Although I am an Auburn graduate, I am willing to interview other people who are from SEC schools. I've actually interviewed uh -huh. Dr. Brian Garrity, who will be in an earlier podcast before this is, who's from Tennessee. And Sam is from, or he did his undergraduate work at the University of Georgia, which I have to say, one of my favorite southern towns and towns of all times is Athens. Well, let me tell you, I think that I think that Auburn has earned its moniker of the prettiest little village on the plain as well. Um, it, Auburn's a neat town. I've been there a couple of times myself, went to uh, two Georgia-Auburn games there. I had a lot of friends who went to Auburn. So um, we're, we're sort of cousins. People who aren't from that part of the country don't understand. There's a rivalry there, but there's also this weird sort of friendship thing as well. It's, so, it's kind of as long as it isn't the weekend before the Auburn exactly. uh, Georgia game, we're okay. And then for that exactly. week, we're mortal enemies. Yes, true. So I guess the question that really I find most interesting to ask people on moving to live, I think I've mentioned this in other podcasts to me, finding out how people arrive where they are is what's interesting. So then when they say something, either when they do a blog post or a Twitter post, or you hear them in a conference, if you understand where they started from, it's kind of like, oh, I see how they got that. So you started at the University of Georgia. What was your plan when you were an undergraduate student at the University of Georgia? What did you major in and where did you think you'd be... Uh, I'm saying this in air quotes, three years from that. Yeah, uh, I went there with high, high uh, expectations of I, I wanted to be a doctor. I actually 
thought about being an orthopedic surgeon, um, which somehow this comes back around to in some way. But uh, and then I took organic chemistry and decided that this probably wasn't the thing I needed to do. And I was I taken a psychology class and I was I got pretty interested in how the human mind works and how people behaviors and whatnot. Ended up becoming a psychology major. <clears throat> Literally, I looked at my uh, schedule one day, and I had to declare a major. I looked, and I had all these courses in psychology, and I said, well, shoot, I'm that close. I might as well major in it. I, I had a weird situation. I, I had a job waiting for me once I finished college as a, as a working in a retail sporting goods store that I really liked. So basically, I got the psychology degree because it was interesting. After about a year of working, I decided I needed something different. I started looking around thinking about what I wanted to do for a career and actually went back to school to become a college administrator. So I have a master's degree in counseling and higher ed administration. Uh, I could have become a licensed therapist. I did not choose that route, but I think it really has helped me professionally and personally having that background of knowing how to listen to people, um, how to communicate with people a bit better. And so I worked as a college administrator and I reached a point, as you do in a lot of careers, where I looked at if I want to continue along this route, I'm going to have to probably get a PhD, or and I'm probably also going to do some things I'm not really thrilled about doing, like real deep budget types of things, and you know, supervising staff, and probably having to deal with you know more meetings than I wanted to do. And as I started thinking about what I really wanted to do with the rest of my life, I, I looked back and. When I was my last quarter at the University of Georgia, I volunteered to be in an exercise science study. I was a, a guinea pig for a doctoral dissertation, and when I was doing that, I got asked to be in a subject in a couple of other studies. I found this really fascinating. I never knew this world of exercise science existed, but it was my last quarter. What am I going to do? Start all over? I'm not going to do that. So, but it had stuck in the back of my mind. I worked at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, and uh, one of my coworkers there had a master's degree in exercise science, and he was a distance runner from Ole Miss. So, um, you know, the SEC world combines once again. And we would talk and stuff, and I found myself really fascinated by this. He would give me, he gave me like one of his old textbooks, and I'd read through it, and really thought this is really, really cool. And so when I was looking to make this change, I decided I, I want to get into that world and with the idea of coaching. And so I um, I started calling around some folks and just by happenstance, the fellow who is the that I was the guinea pig and the doctoral student was at Kennesaw State University, which was just down the road from where I was living at the time. I saw his name on the on the list and I called him up and I said, look, I uh, you know, I need some advice here what to do. And he goes, don't get an undergraduate degree. Go down to Georgia State, get a master's degree. You'll have to take a few classes in undergrad, but do it. And so, oh, you can do that? And so reached out, applied to Georgia State, uh, got in there. And this was 1995. And in Atlanta, Georgia, kind of a good time to be there because the Olympics were coming up in 96. And so I was in the master's program in 95. And um I, I was standing in the doorway of our lab one day, and they were in testing Olympic athletes, and there were people from the USOC there. And one of one of the professors yelled at me in the door. He he literally yelled at me, "What are you doing here?" And I thought, "Oh crap, I'm in trouble." 
And uh, I said, I, I'm just watching. I, I'll leave. And he goes, no, if you're going if you're going to be here, you're going to help. So he said, grab a pair of gloves. And he gave me a job to do. I had no idea what I was doing. He gave me a menial task to do, and I did it. And from there on out, every time we had athletes coming in, he would come and say, are you free? Can you help out with the testing? And that led to me working with the women's gymnastics team on a nutrition project. Uh, one of our professors was working with them, Dan Benedott. And over time, built those connections with the people at the USOC. And when I uh, was finishing up graduate school, my professor, uh, Andy Doyle, gave me a job announcement for a job at the U.S. Olympic Committee out here in Colorado Springs. And I applied, and they brought me out. So for a year and a half, I worked in the Athlete Performance Lab with top-level athletes from about – I think I counted 26 sports that I did something with. Um, got my master's degree in exercise science and um, eventually moved to USA Cycling as their sports science person and then um, actually – Moved transition into coaching education. We did some reorganization and um, changed priorities within cycling. And really, I've been a coach educator uh, since then with no real formal training in that area. What I picked up and learned, and um, I, I found coaches to be fascinating. I, I love sitting at dinner tables with coaches and uh, listening to them talk and ask questions and trying to help them figure out what they needed to know. And that was part of what I did at the USOC as well. So that's – and then a little diversion to the YMCA here in town, a little diversion into teaching um, in a personal trainer program, pro, uh, preparation program. And now I'm back in the Olympic world. So that's my long and rambling story. The interesting thing is we probably were in Georgia State at the same time. Uh, interesting story with Dr. Doyle. I've actually got a list of things on my computer that I need to do, as you probably do, and it probably grows each day. One of the things that's been on for the last three or four years that after hearing this, I'm going to do it is the reason that I have a PhD, whether he realizes it or not, is because of Dr. Doyle. I worked in Atlanta as an uh -huh. I worked in Atlanta as an athletic trainer, and I saw that they were looking for somebody to run on the treadmill for a study. And I oh, went, no. And I went down, and this was a study where they were – I was actually a control. They were looking at uh, the effect of carbohydrate beverages on female runners, and I was one of the male runners. <laughs> and, yes. And the interesting thing is, so I did this, and I was talking to the master's student. I don't remember her name, and if you remember her name and you're <sighs> able to tell me, this would be wonderful. Uh, and I was saying, yeah, I was thinking of getting a degree in exercise physiology, but I – probably because it made better sense was going to become a physician's assistant and go back to school and co go work for my orthopedic. A couple of weeks later, I saw this uh, girl or lady at the Southeastern ACSM and she grabs my arm and says, you need to go talk to Dr. Doyle. <laughs> and from driving up to Lexington from Atlanta saying, yeah, this will be the last sports medicine conference I'll go to, to driving back down to, I guess I'm going into debt and going into grad school. <laughs> Wow. I, I, I tell you, what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing his praises. Andy Doyle has been such a great influence in my life. Um, we, we became – when we became good friends, I actually hired him when I was working at USA Cycling. I hired him to come and teach at our coaching clinics. And uh, I always told people that, you know, look, this, this guy really knows how to teach stuff, and everybody would leave and go, my guy, I can see why you thought he was such a great professor. And, um, and, and I'll, I'll plug him a little bit. He actually has his lectures on iTunes U, and they're fantastic. In fact, I've used them as outlines for lectures that I've had to give. And, um, and yeah, he's, uh, he, he's 
he was a great professor and got me interested, was willing to help me. And this is something I think if somebody is thinking about going to graduate school, find that professor who is the person who's going to you know, help you flame your passion and, and support you in it. He, you know, I did some things that were a little extraordinary in graduate school, and he was right there, helped me navigate the world so that I could get what I wanted to out of the program. And I think that helped me become, um, helped me out a lot later on as well. So having that person, that advocate for you is really a great thing. And during this time as you're exploring from the psychology major to the counseling degree to going back to school, were you an endurance athlete? Were you a cyclist, a runner, a triathlete, or were you somebody who got into that once you started talking to that uh, old Miss runner when you were up doing some counseling work? No, I, I, I ran high school track and cross country and definitely an endurance sport guy. Uh, and then uh, stayed with running for quite a while. Got a little bored with it and went to triathlon, which I think is a pretty common transition that uh, people made in the late 80s. And triathlon was really booming at that time, too. And I was living in Wisconsin, and every little town in Wisconsin has a lake. Every little town had triathlon, and so it was fantastic. Didn't have to drive very far. And then I did get into cycling a bit and probably a little bit more once I got out here, actually got into mountain biking a lot more because it's just a mecca for mountain biking. Um, so, yeah, I've had an endurance sports background for the last, you know, 40 plus years. And from looking at the information you sent in the little bio form we asked you to fill out, you're still involved with it. In addition to your U.S. fencing education role, you also have a part-time coaching business also. Could you talk a little bit about how you got into Smarter Coaching, which is the name of your coaching business? Yeah, yeah. I uh, Like I said, when I went back to graduate school, my, my first idea was really I thought I wanted to coach, maybe uh, high school cross-country uh, coach or, or track coach. And when th – this was where Andy Doyle comes into play. When my professor who encouraged me to follow through with this, he knew that was my passion – and I got an internship with Jeff Galloway. And if folks aren't familiar with Jeff Galloway, he's written several books on running, 1972 Olympian, um, in the 10,000 marathon. And Jeff lived in Atlanta at the time, still does. And so I approached Jeff about doing my internship for my exercise science program with him coaching. And he agreed. Um, I had another – I had a friend of mine who had actually been on the track team at Florida State with Jeff, so I had a little bit of an end with that. And so I did my internship, whereas most people went to cardiac rehab or some sort of wellness, corporate wellness thing. I coached. And so I worked with him and some advanced runners that he had at the time who were trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And I coached a couple of people after that, just individuals who had stumbled upon either coming into our fitness center or, or whatnot. And then when I moved out here, I, I started coaching a little bit for a charity program. And then from there, kind of word of mouth spread, and I started coaching a few individuals, took some time off from doing that once uh, started a family and, and was traveling uh, a lot and just couldn't really dedicate myself to the athletes. And for me, I, I really throw my heart and soul into my athletes, which is why I typically keep the number at five or fewer at any given time. Um I, I want to give them as much individual attention as possible, and um, I've done some big group coaching. Um, a woman and I, a woman here in town, and I had started a group where we had about eighty to hundred runners trained for a marathon, and I found I, I, that lacked what I really wanted out of it. 
uh, the personal contact. It was very, it was very cookie cutter program training. Mostly people were first time marathoners, so wasn't as concerned about it. But um, yeah, so I've been doing that now off and on for under various names and guises for about the last ten or so years, and uh, am still you know. Still doing clients kind of on a little lull right now. Uh, starting a new job, and all my marathoners finish their marathons in the spring. And I'm going now around back contacting them and see if they're crazy enough to try a fall marathon. We've been talking with Sam Callen. Sam is the owner of Smarter Coaching. He is also the make sure I get this correct, the USA Fencing Coach Educator. Which, from what he said earlier mm-hmm. in the interview, you are the first person. That has been the coaching editor, edu- uh, excuse me, coaching educator for <laughs> USA Fencing. And I'm assuming yes. from what you said, uh, this is USA Fencing looked at it and realized that some other sports, I know USA Cycling, for example, has a coaching program. Was this, right. was this, uh, USA Fencing looking at all the other, uh, national sports and saying, you know, this is something we could use too? Um, I, I think there was some of that, and I, I think a lot of it was just their, the internal desire to make sure that we are given um, fencing coaches out there and people who want to become fencing coaches the best education possible, and that we also are making sure that we have a we have an idea of how we want athletes to progress through the pipeline, and we want to make sure that that message is consistent and not uh, either getting different messages or um, contradictory messages in some way. The, the youth sport landscape right now is really in a, a fascinating time, and um, we want to make sure that we're sending the right message about how athletes develop uh, into – one is into elite athletes because we are about Olympic medals. One of the things about the Olympic world is that medals matter when it comes to funding from the United States Olympic Committee, um, but also we have uh, – you know. We're approaching 40,000 members total, of which at any given time, you know, we send about 12 athletes to the Olympics every four years. So really part of the process is also making sure that when kids come into a fencing club, they have a really good experience right off the bat and that they stay involved in the sport, um, either competitive, become referees, become coaches, become club owners, become officials, you know, become volunteers on our board, donate to our foundation and just make sure that they have a really good experience. And many NGBs are going that route, looking at um, looking at developing the whole person, and not just uh, the the handful of elite athletes that are going to come out the other end of the pipeline. Because most of us are not going to, you know, get close to that. Um, and we want to talk more about that when we come back in two weeks and find uh, kind of pick your brain and get some ideas from your coaching experience, both in the endurance world and in the USA fencing world. Sam, I want to thank you for doing the first part of this interview. I'm looking forward to catching up with you in two weeks to do the second part of the interview. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at 
gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.